0: Thank you so much for joining us. I couldn't be more thrilled to be here with Father Robert Spitzer. Father Robert is joining us all the way from California, and today he's here to talk about his new book, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives, the cosmic struggle between good and evil. Now, Father Robert is the president of the MAGA Center in California, and you can learn more about his esteemed career and his other works by reading the video description below. And before I hand the screen to him, I would like to encourage you to follow us on social media We're on all the platforms and to sign up for our email listserv so you can stay up to date on all of the upcoming events, programs, and sacraments that the CIC has to offer you. And without further ado, I give you Father Robert Spitzer.
1: Thanks so much, Rosemary, and um, just an honor to be with uh, all of your good listeners and guests today. Um, As you pointed out, I'm speaking on my book, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives and uh, might start off with why did I write the book? I wrote it because I think that the evidence of Satan today is just overwhelming. I think that most people don't pay attention uh, to the warning signs that are affecting them in their personal lives, but also affecting them culturally. I think that um, uh, this is increasing dramatically. And um, when people don't pay attention to it, they are literally, you know, pulled into uh, the darkness, pulled into Satan's seductions, pulled onto a road of uh, real perdition, and um, almost unwittingly begin to cooperate with Satan, um, not just uh, to their own detriment, but uh, cooperate with his mission to compromise the lives of other people. So um, I think, as I said, the evidence is quite clear, but. Uh, I wrote the book uh, to make it really, really clear. I wanted to give even evidence of possessions, which we'll talk about in a moment. I wanted to talk about the tactics that uh, Satan uses. I also wanted uh, to talk about um, the eight deadly sins and look at uh, uh, the eight deadly sins from the vantage point, not only of the Bible, uh, but also of contemporary literature. But I thought I'd better start off the book with uh, chapter one, <clears throat> which is the evidence of God's presence in the world. God, as we shall see, and certainly overcome Satan when he cast Satan out of uh, the heavenly domain, uh, but also Jesus uh, overcame Satan uh, in his ministry and specifically and completely in his passion, death and resurrection. Nevertheless, as we shall see, Satan is still around. So uh, one might ask the question legitimately, well, did Jesus really defeat Satan? If he did, how come Satan is so powerful today? How come he is getting such uh, overwhelming uh, influence and power in our culture today uh, if uh, Christ has uh, overcome him completely? So these are the questions that we're going to look into, but chapter one really Uh, addresses the fact that the Holy Spirit is out there and very operative. So I decided to approach it from three vantage points. Uh, First of all, I've got a whole segment in there about, well, how does the Holy Spirit manifest Himself? What are the ways that God communicates with us? from the little voices in the back of our mind to the guidance that we seem to get through consolations and desolations. How does the Holy Spirit drive us, energize us, inspire us, give us these ideas, almost enkindle a, a desire within us to work for the kingdom of God? Sometimes it's great sacrifice, sometimes it's a pure joy. But the point is, how do we follow, how do we know? Uh, when the Holy Spirit is, is present? How do we get a, a sense of how to discern the, uh, the presence of the Spirit? How do we follow the Spirit optimally? Uh, what are the key clues to His inspiration, etc.? So that's uh, the first chapter looks into uh, following the Holy Spirit, but then it also looks into um, uh, Christian mysticism. So how is it that, you know, we go into the interior life? How is it that, you know, God moves us to purify ourselves inwardly and respond to him as we move, you know, successively from the purgative uh, to the illuminative, to the unitive stages of uh, prayer and the mystical life? So the Christian mystical life, of course, is very, very uh, important. And so we examine that. I even put an appendix in the book about uh, miracles, uh, basically contemporary, scientifically validated miracles, because they are so important. Sometimes we overlook the obvious, and, and I didn't want to do that, I wanted to take a good hard look at uh, miracles that have occurred uh, through the intercession of of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, Specifically, um, we look at uh, Guadalupe from a scientific point of view. I'll talk about that in a moment Uh, later on toward the end of the broadcast. We also take a look at Lourdes, uh, some of the scientifically validated miracles uh, from the Uh, the water and the the Eucharistic blessing at Lourdes, most remarkable uh, miracle and miracles. And then uh, we take a look at the Fatima miracle, the miracle of the sun, what's going on there. And and additionally, um, uh, we look at miracles concerned with uh, saints, especially the one Um, from uh, Venerable um, uh, Bishop uh, Fulton J. Sheen and uh, Padre Pio. And then we look at uh, several Eucharistic miracles that have been contemporary scientifically validated, uh, especially the one from Buenos Aires in 1996 that was overseen by um, Archbishop Bergoglio, who later became, of course, Pope Francis. So uh, we look at those uh, very seriously because God's present there too. But he's present not only in the big miracles, the ones that can be you know open and and accessible to the domains of science but uh, also uh, to the Holy Spirit uh, working in our lives, the little miracles, the conspiracies of divine providence that happen in our, life, in our lives, the consolations and desolations that happen not only within prayer but outside of prayer, and, of course, the life of Christian mysticism and God's presence in it because, of course, He's moving us uh, in, in you know, the pursuit of, of the um, mystical life and the unitive a dimension of mystical life. So that's uh, the first chapter. The second chapter is all about Jesus' uh, battle with Satan. And as many of you know, Jesus did, in fact, battle Satan um, very significantly throughout his ministry. He came to this earth, he said, to bring the kingdom of God in his own person. And the kingdom of God has multiple meanings. One of the meanings it has is he's bringing down, as it were, this pathway for us to get uh, to uh, to the kingdom of God in heaven. So he's trying to take, uh, uh, you know, build a pathway from the kingdom of God that he's bringing to earth right up into the kingdom of God in heaven. And, of course, that includes the church, and that includes the Holy Eucharist and the Sacrament of Reconciliation, which, as we shall see, are most important in our battle against Satan. But in addition to all of uh, these things, uh, he also had this intention of bringing the kingdom through the defeat of Satan. So one of the, you know, three specific reasons that he has come uh, to earth is to uh, um, uh, not only bring the kingdom of God, uh, you know, break it through, through the sacraments that he's going to uh, initiate, but he's also going to defeat Satan definitively. And the third thing that he intends to do is to pay the price of all of the sins that we have committed throughout the whole history of humankind, he is going to give an inestimable self-sacrifice, which is going to pay the price of it all, and then infuse the grace of that love in his church uh, and and in the lives of of the saints who have carried this forward from, uh, you know, one generation to the next uh, over 20 centuries. So this is uh, Jesus' plan, but we want to focus on that second part of his plan to defeat Satan. Satan had become the prince of this world using, uh, you know, the Joannine uh, words, and and he's becoming very powerful indeed. So Jesus has a five-part plan that he implements, um, and, uh, you know, all of it is going to ultimately result in checkmate. Uh, He's going to checkmate Satan and make him powerless if, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and if we take advantage of the wonderful gifts that he has given us through the Holy Spirit and through his church. So um, number one uh, part of the plan is that uh, uh, Jesus goes into the desert immediately after his baptism and allows himself to be tempted by Satan. This is a showdown at the O.K. Corral, and Jesus definitely intends it to be that way. He knows that Satan is going to be uh, coming to him, and he knows the tactics that Satan will be using. And Satan, of course, comes right away with the the usual sensual temptations. So um, just if you really are the son of God, then turn these loaves, uh, these rocks, into loaves. And of course you can see um, the the first thing is the appeal to pride. You know, if you really are the son, I'm, I'm challenging you. If you really are who you say you are, then go ahead, turn these, uh, these stones into loaves of bread, and we'll see. And by the way, uh, you can eat some of them too, why not? You're the son of God. And uh, of course, Jesus does not fall for that. Man does not live on bread alone, he says to Satan. And of course, Satan, in well, there's a reverse now between Matthew and Luke's accounts. Uh, uh, in the second instance, uh, you know, Satan takes uh, uh, Jesus uh, in front of all the kingdoms of the world, right? And says, okay, all you have to do is bow down and worship me. And I'll give you everything, because I've got the power over all these kingdoms. After all, I am the prince of this world. And Jesus, of course, looks at him and goes, no, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. Him alone shall you serve. So of course he he resists the temptation to be given power and so forth in his human nature. Plus, of course, he knows that Satan has absolutely nothing to offer him that his heavenly Father could not give him uh, in in complete and total uh, absoluteness. So uh, he knows it's just a powerless ploy, but the usual satanic temptation. Then, thirdly, he he uh, Satan. You know, says, OK, just throw yourself down from this parapet. After all, if you're the son of God, then you can do this. And he's going to send his angels after you. And here I got a scripture quote, of course, devil quote scripture and uh, comes right over. And, and Jesus says, no, no, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to uh, fall even for this uh, because thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. And uh, so uh, we don't want to, um, you know, we don't need to go any further. Clearly, what happens is it's uh, Luke's account says that, you know, Satan goes away to await another time. But make no mistake about it. Satan is defeated at this moment. He is rendered powerless. And how do we know? Because when Jesus comes out of the desert, The first thing he does is he goes right to the synagogue. And um, uh, as he goes into the synagogue, right there in the synagogue is a man who's possessed by a demon. The demon already knows two things. Number one, who Jesus is. And the fact that Jesus now has complete power over him in his human nature, he has power over all the demons. And the demons say, what would you have of us? Jesus, Son of God, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus just simply just says, "Get out of the man in one command, right? And that's the end of that. Notice what happens here. Jesus does not have to say, as we do, in the name of Jesus, begone, Satan. Uh, in the name of God, begone, Satan. Jesus utters the command by his own authority. He is the son of God. He does not need to make recourse to the name of God or to, you know, a pleading uh, to God uh, to um, uh, get rid of the demon. Jesus can do it by his own authority. And instantly the man is relieved from the satanic burden. So that's the second part of his plan, is he's going to engage in a prolific ministry of exorcisms. Uh, Is this a powerful ministry? It is such a prolific ministry, probably taking place on a daily basis. It is so prolific that the Pharisees find themselves powerless to argue with the people, you know, that it hasn't happened. In other words, everybody knows that Jesus Uh, is casting out demons. He's doing it successfully. He's doing it by his own command and his own power. And so what can the Pharisees do? They can't very well come along and say, well, he's not casting out any demons. Well, he is. So they're they're, they're left with the ridiculous argument that he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, which of course is, uh, uh, as Jesus points out, an absurdity. Uh, Why? Because, of course, the idea of casting out demons by the prince of demons is like Satan casting out Satan. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and Satan, if he is divided against himself, also his kingdom will collapse. Obviously, Satan is not going to cast himself out. That's the most ridiculous argument ever known. And by the way, says Jesus, who are your people casting out demons by? And of course, they're not doing it by their own authority. Jesus is doing it by his own authority. And this is kind of what gets the uh, the, the scribes. So we have a very good idea, right? I mean, what Christian is ever going to put in the New Testament? What Who's going to record that Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons? I mean, are you kidding me? That is such an insult, such a repulsive remark for any believing Christian to have to put into a New Testament text. If it weren't true that the Pharisees had accused him of this, then you can be sure that um, they would have never written it. It it, it would be senseless to to say it gratuitously. So the point I'm making here is if the Pharisees said it, you got to ask, why did they say it? because they were powerless to protest the fact that Jesus was successfully casting out demons by his own authority. They're stuck with an absurd argument. So Jesus has got this second plan totally engaged. He's basically wiping out the presence of Satan, doing exorcisms on a regular basis day to day in his ministry, and is causing a stir among the religious authorities by causing awe among the common people. So then he goes to the third part of his plan, and in the third part of his plan, he actually starts engaging all of his disciples, not just the apostles, right, but the 72 disciples, that the additional ones, and what does he do? He gives them the power to exorcise demons in his Name. This will become important uh, a little bit later. So he then uh, he gives the the power away to his apostles, of course, and, and his disciples, which will uh, who will of course later constitute his church, and that's uh, you know precisely part of the plan. The power of exorcism, uh, which will become important and certainly is important in our day, I'll tell you that. So the uh, uh, that's the third part of the plan. The fourth part of the plan is the teachings that he has about who Satan is. How does he tempt? How does he deceive? What kinds of things does he do? He has an effect not only um, on uh, on uh, people who are susceptible to Satan, but okay. even the many deceits uh, that he uh, proffers, not only toward his own um, uh, not only toward the, the people who are open to Satan, but also um, are um, uh, uh, you know, going to affect his own apostles, namely Judas. And to some extent, Peter, you know, when he denies Jesus, of course, uh, because of his fears, and because uh, those fears are exacerbated uh, by Satan, and and even Jesus tells Peter, Satan's going to sift you like grain, and so the uh, the point uh, uh, is pretty clear here that um, that. Uh, um, Uh, Satan is uh, powerful, but Jesus teaches his disciples about that, and finally comes the climax, right? Here is when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be persecuted, but what, you know, Satan doesn't know is that Jesus intends to pay the price for all sins in an unconditional act of self-sacrifice, which Jesus uh, interprets as an unconditional act of self-gift, and gift of self is love so it's an unconditional act of love so you know satan is busy tempting judas you know get out there and betray him etc etc and if there's any resentments to you know judas has toward jesus then he, getting those all stoked up and and uh, getting him to betray him and then finally of course um, uh, you know he does betray him uh, jesus is put to death and as he's breathing his last on the cross you can just see satan You know, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then Jesus has his last psalm, right, which is not a panic attack on the cross when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you probably know, that is Psalm 22. And the entire psalm is not about Jesus, uh, you know, feeling forsaken by God. That's the first verse. But then the psalmist and Jesus are saying that no, I trust you. I know you will grant victory to your uh, to your servant. And then it goes through uh, the most remarkable um, uh, set of. Uh, uh, coincidences with the crucifixion that Jesus has just undergone, they're all there in the psalm. And then finally, um, uh, at the end of the, the account of those outrages that this um, innocent servant suffers, Jesus says that this is all for the universal salvation of humankind, not just for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles, not just for the present generation, but for the future and even the past generations. Check me. All of a sudden, when the devil understands the meaning of Psalm 22 in the context of Jesus' death, he knows he's been outwitted. He knows that he has uh, that Jesus has created this unconditional act of love for a lifetime. He knows uh, that that basically he has lost the battle definitively. That brings us back to our question: Then why is Satan so active today? Why is it that we see his powerful uh, you know, uh, uh, movements of deceit and temptation today. In a two words, free choice. That's the reason we, in the present generation, still have free choice. If we have free choice, then God has to allude, allow us to choose either a loving thing or an unloving thing, to choose something good or to choose something evil, to choose something that will aggrandize others or aggrandize ourselves, et cetera. Et cetera. So we can see that uh, uh, because we have free choice, God just simply can't cut Satan out of the picture. And of course, Satan knows that he cannot be cut out of the picture because, as it were, he has the right to take a shot at us because we have, as it were, through our free choice, we have to be able to hear what those temptations are, even though God doesn't leave us, you know, uh, as it were, uh, victims. Uh, of circumstance, God gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the sacraments of the Church. Gives us uh, Jesus's teaching. So we're not powerless. We, we are fifty-one percent uh, able to get over our own concupiscence of original sin, and we are able to to move, um, you know, to resist temptation. But it takes time. And so uh, I've written a whole second book called Escape from Evil's Darkness, which we'll talk about at another time, uh, which just got released by Ignatius Press but in that book we talk about how do you uh, you know engage in moral conversion in a much more concerted way but uh, for the moment we've got free choice the devil is real the devil can get a shot at us and indeed he'll take the best shot he has because he wants to bring minions into his kingdom to you know subject us to uh, serving him rather than the lord of love Uh, the creator who has given us everything and redeemed us by his own blood. So uh, chapter three, um, as I said earlier, people really don't believe that there's a devil out there. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to present two credible uh, cases of exorcism. Uh, The first one is the exorcism of Robbie Mannheim, as many of you uh, probably know. Uh, This diary, which was, well, it was written by two Jesuits specifically, but it was, there were about eight Jesuits involved in the exorcism um, in any case, and those eight Jesuits um, were uh, uh, very uh, involved in the exorcism in St. Louis proper. Uh, the exorcism actually began at the Georgetown University me- uh, Medical Center, the hospital there, um, um, uh, earlier on. But uh, it had, as we'll see, a, a, tra- a tragic ending. Um, not tragic, but almost tragic ending. Um, the second uh, exorcism is the uh, exorcism, attempted exorcism of a satanic priestess Uh, named Julia. It was witnessed by um, uh, Dr. Richard Gallagher, who just uh, wrote a book called Demonic Foes, uh, which covers uh, many of the exorcisms that uh, he witnessed uh, throughout his time as the consulting psychiatrist. But he has great credentials, as well as uh, those eight Jesuits at at St. Louis University, who are all uh, pretty much academics um, at the university. Well, Dr. Gallagher has Yale, Columbia, uh, credentials, um, very um, obviously not going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, exaggerating his accounts. So let's go to Robbie Mannheim's uh, uh, exorcism, which became uh, William you know, William Peter Blatty got a hold of this diary, Um, and uh, I think probably a Jesuit slipped it to him. Uh, Maybe a Jesuit I know may have slipped it to him. But anyway, the the long and the short of it is that uh, this exorcism became quite public and in 1973. A movie was made of it. Robbie Mannheim was an interesting kid. Um, He was a real introvert. He was a kind of a loner, but he had a real good friend in his spiritualist Aunt Harriet. And so um, he, she taught him how to use the Ouija board to communicate with spirits and, um, you know, the. Planchet would be moving all over the board, and, and uh, Robbie knew how to, you know, to uh, to get the spirit to communicate through the the Planchet through the Ouija board, which, by the way, no one should ever use, ever, ever, ever under any circumstances, uh, because of course it's an invitation to the devil to come right not only uh, into your house but into your uh, very soul, not into your soul but into your uh, very subconscious mind and into your body. But what uh, happened to Robbie? So Aunt Harriet dies. And when Aunt Harriet dies, uh, Robbie gets lonely. She's basically his best friend. And so um, he decides, well, I'm just going to use the Ouija board. Of course, she'll communicate with me. So he communicates with the Ouija board. And sure enough, the planchette moves around and says, yeah, I'm your Aunt Harriet. But it wasn't his Aunt Harriet. Obviously, it was a very powerful demonic spirit who possesses Robbie uh, to such a, a degree that um, uh, um, uh, his whole bed is levitating, not just Robbie levitating, the bed with Robbie uh, is is levitating. The chests of drawers are just slamming across the room with nobody uh, exerting any kind of physical force whatsoever, right? It's uh, the most remarkable set of occurrences, and his parents are panicking out. So they basically go to his Lutheran pastor, they say, you got to do something for this kid. He goes, it's just purely psychological, but I'll keep Robbie for two days and I'll prove it to you well of course when the bed starts levitating and all the furniture is moving all across the room and robbie is shouting out obscenities that are remark absolutely you know overwhelming and his whole body is spelling out in, in in bumps and scrapes and scratches all over his body hell evil so forth and so on you know the lutheran minister goes uh oh and this might not be psychological. There could be something to this. So he said, You better go see one of those Catholic priests. They know something about this. So Robbie's parents, who are Lutheran, go to the this Catholic priest in a nearby parish in, um, I think it's uh, uh, um, uh, 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 Cottage Grove, Maryland. And so uh, uh, the poor guy is just ordained priest, right? He's a very nice priest. And Really doesn't know what he's getting into. And so um, he says, Well, let me test and see, you know, whether Robbie you know, and of course all the crazy paranormal activities begin to happen. So he decides it's gonna get really tricky. So he speaks to Robbie in Latin. And Robbie, who of course who hasn't studied a single word of Latin, begins to answer him not only in Latin, but in ancient Aramaic. And he seems fluent without studying a single word. So the guy goes, This is an unusual case. I'll take it to the bishop and I'll see if I can proceed on an exorcism. So he goes to the Georgetown University Hospital. Well, possessed people get a whole lot of strength. So what happens is Robbie sticks his hand under, he's in a straitjacket. He breaks through the straitjacket. He sticks his hand underneath his mattress in his hospital bed and snaps off a bed spring. Can you imagine? This is a kid who's not an athlete. This is a nice, introverted, soft-spoken kid. Snaps off a spring and just whacks this priest's arm, starting from the shoulder all the way down to his wrist, and splits his arm wide open. The guy's gushing blood all over the place. Probably would have died if he hadn't done it in the hospital where they could take him into surgery right away. But the point I'm getting to is that this kid was almost out of control, and he was a very mild-mannered, Uh, Kid, so they go. Okay, um, you know, uh, we don't have another exorcist here in the diocese. You got to go. So they go over to St. Louis, and finally, these um, Jesuits. Uh, there at the university, there was a contact there with these Jesuits, um, you know, and they were pretty much academics, but um, the bishop asked them if they do the exorcism, so they went ahead and did it. It took 39 full exorcisms of Robbie, and when he was not manifesting the demonic spirit, uh, you know, people who have a, you know, are possessed, they, you know, th- that sometimes they're manifesting the demonic spirit, sometimes they look like they're perfectly in their right mind, there's nothing wrong at all, but then when the Manifestation starts hitting, right, and then it's uh, uh, pretty clear that they're possessed. So the the point, uh, you know, um, uh, is that uh, uh, the Jesuits uh, began the exorcism, got Robbie to convert uh, not only to Catholicism but to take it, say the creed step by step. Then they proceeded to a spiritual communion, and then finally to a little bit of host um, that he was able to receive. Uh, right after Easter Sunday, and then um, uh, you know the 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 real. Uh, exit um, begins to happen because at that juncture, Robbie's freedom and the freedom of the person possessed has to be there—the the the, or the freedom to to say, I reject Satan, I love Jesus Christ, and in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm rejecting Satan. So Robbie didn't quite get all those words out, but it was pretty clear what he intended because, of course, the the the, the demonic spirit was just basically, uh, you know causing tremendous um, trepidation in the part of uh, Robbie every time he tried to pronounce words. But he finally eked out enough of the words so that at one point on Easter Monday, St. Michael just appears right above Robbie. And as he appears, he orders him and and the actual words are in the diary. And by the way, there's a very good uh, scholarly book available uh, written by a guy named Thomas Allen called Possessed. Um, I think the subtitle is a real life uh, Uh, demonic possession or exorcism, um, uh, you know, in uh, in contemporary times or something like that. But anyway, um, uh, uh, Thomas Allen is the guy, and the whole diary is published in the appendix, but it's very well footnoted. He really did his research. He went through the archives at Georgetown University uh, for the first exorcism, etc. So it's a good book to to take a look at. But the point I'm trying to make is, yes, um, St. Michael is the one that comes at the last moment. standing above Robbie. When that happens, literally, the, this light ball just proceeds right out of the uh, room where the exorcism is taking place, goes across the street to the, uh, to the uh, uh, college church at you know, uh, St. Louis University College Church. And all the priests who are saying mass in this very dimly lit church, boom, the thing just, uh, this thunderclap gets. And there's this big pulse of uh, almost like lightning light that just comes into the church. And that's the end of it. Robbie returns to his, you know, a former, very sane, mild-mannered self and doesn't remember a thing about what happened to him, the possession, et cetera. It's almost like it affected his subconscious mind, but it never The devil never got to his soul, which is precisely Catholic doctrine. The devil cannot ruin your free choice. So the the point um, uh, is pretty clear that um, uh, the the, the exorcisms worked. The satanic, I can't get into this satanic priestess Julia too much. The point though, um, as Dr. Richard Gallagher reports the case, is she started off, she was very worried about what was going to happen, very worried that she was being pulled into hell, very worried about what her cult would do to her. Uh, she had been very, very much, she, she basically called a provider uh, because she would provide aborted fetuses, Uh, for sacrifices uh, at the demonic rituals. And because of that, she was uh, uh, even being watched uh, by, by the cult, but she was very scared of Satan and her eternal future. But she also had these gifts that were given to her by Satan. You know, she had this kind of prescient knowledge. She was able to do things. One time, Dr. Gallagher was at his office, and the priest, who was the main exorcist, Uh, was, um, you know, in another town completely far away talking on the telephone. Julia was not even remotely present to either party on either end of the phone call. And her voice would just come right over the phone. And, you know, she would, you know, it wasn't her voice. It was the demonic voice in her uh, would be, you know, trying to argue uh, with the Uh, you know, the priest and, of course, calling them names and recounting, you know, the exorcist sins, you know, and everything that happened in their life, you know. And, of course, you you just got to, you know, you don't know what's a lie and what's not a lie, but he's going to give everything he can to to distract and get, you know, uh, the exorcist off. But then Julia quit of her own free will. Uh, Nobody quite sure why. Uh, you know, Dr. Gallagher speculated maybe because uh, you know she was very high in in the uh, in the cult, maybe she was scared of the members of the cult, especially the cult leader uh, who could have been a very violent man, and then of course. Um, uh, she liked the gifts that she, was, she had, you know, this capacity for telepathy, this capacity to do paranormal activity, this capacity to have knowledge that nobody else would have, et cetera. She kind of liked it. But anyway, she stopped going to the exorcisms. Um, they got a phone call from her once, and then she never did return. And so, uh, tragically, uh, that one uh, did not turn out. But I put it there specifically because of the need for the free involvement of the possessed person. We must reject Satan freely. And, of course, once you become habituated to some of those seductions of uh, Satan, etc., 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 then you know that um, it gets harder and harder to re- resist those seductions the further down the path you get. So. Um, Uh, I, I just put it in there and just said, you know, don't mess with the devil because he's messing with you. But the way you can defeat the devil is through this simple prayer, which I would repeat again and again, if you ever find yourself... Sensing pressure on your chest or sensing, you know, kind of a real temptation that won't go away or sensing almost that de- demonic presence that, where you feel a deep sense of emptiness, alienation, loneliness, or even a sense of, of real, you know, that vapid eyes of the compassionless, loveless, cold person. You know, you feel those eyes of the demonic upon you, you know, with the, the cold shudder of horror. Uh, If you ever feel like that, here's your prayer and remember it and say it a million times until that you can defeat him right there with your faith by just saying in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, be gone, Satan. And just keep repeating it in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior, be gone, Satan. You say it for about the fifth, sixth time, you'll notice he weakens. And, or the, the spirits will weaken whoever they may be. And then you will notice that all of a sudden they do go away. And of course, what winds up happening is you get a sense of God's sacredness or holiness, or sometimes the Blessed Virgin Mary, you kind of almost sense her presence or, uh, you know, the Lord and Blessed Virgin Mary or whatever it is. But you get this sense uh, in the offing of a peace that is not of your own making but it's a piece with maybe the flavor of Jesus or the flavor of the Blessed Virgin. Um, And um, again, the power of that prayer, the power of the name of Jesus, do not forget it. Let me go to the fourth uh, chapter, as I know, I'm, I'll run short of time if I if I don't. But um, uh, the main uh, point of the fourth chapter is to describe the more ordinary tactics of Satan. So uh, getting outside of the realm of what's called possessions and obsessions and oppressions and hauntings or infestations, uh, which th- that really concerns the third chapter. Now we get into the more ordinary things. So temptations, deceit and accusation. I think most of us recognize the temptations. Remember, when the devil attempts, uh, he uses images. That's his favorite way to do it. So, uh, you know, if you like um, bowls of linguine, you're going to get images of bowls of linguine. Sometimes they're of your own making. You know, you're just dreaming about linguine. But sometimes he's putting the extra garlic sauce in it and he's making it as tempting as he can for you to go. Or if alcohol is your deal, you're going to get images of that. If, you know, lust is the deal, you'll have images of that. If greed is the deal, you'll have images of everything you're greedy for. If, if, you know, if you're angry about something or prone to anger, you're going to get that dirty rat who did this to you. And you got to get vengeance right now. You're going to get uh, the temptation. If envy is your deal, you get the point. If pride or arrogance or narcissism is your deal, you're going to get all the images you can possibly handle to get you distracted. But eventually, um, you know, as uh, um, I say in the book, you know, the temptations are going to wane when the devil has less and less and less successes. So he puts these images in front of you and you just go, "Ah!" you know, you really don't care anymore. And it really, you really don't care anymore. And you just simply say, I could care less about these things. And you just turn uh, to Mary and you, or you turn to the Lord and you just say, you know, dear Blessed Mother, help me or dear Lord, help me. And then you can use the prayer of the name of Jesus, my Lord and my Savior, be gone Satan. Right. As you do these things, notice what happens. Notice that, um, that, uh, uh, um, that the Lord um, really does decrease that presence of Satan. Notice that the temptations really do start to wane. And, you know, after a while, he really it's really hard for him to tempt you. You know, he's gonna try again and again and again. Don't think temptations will go away, even if you are really on the road to a uh, significant road to moral conversion. He will strike you with wherever he can get to you. So if you say, I've defeated um, the problem with uh, anger and lust. Don't worry, he will come back with greed and pride. Then he'll switch back to the anger and lust or whatever it might be. So just remember, um, you're going to have to struggle, but the, the smart thing to do is to figure out you know, how to be real quick about identifying, I'm getting tempted here. And then the second thing to do is to remember the quicker I get to this temptation and reject it, the better off I'm going to be. The third thing to do is immediately invoke either the name of Jesus, right? In the name of Jesus, be gone, say, or uh, to invoke uh, the, um, Jesus or the Blessed Virgin Mary to ask for help or help from St. Michael. Because if you do those things and you remember, I got to just overcome this. Then, you know, um, he's going to be much less successful. I'll tell you this, though, um, a real uh, uh, important fact that as you get better and better at your spiritual conversion, that is to say, your relationship with God in prayer and your moral conversion. It's really, really hard to, you know, because the moment you have a reflective act, so let's say you're getting, getting tempted by some um, temptation. You know, pick a temptation, any temptation, I'm going to blow up and get angry, uh, you know, at this moment. Now, if you're going into that mode, the minute you just go, but, oh, my gosh, I'll just shipwreck my relationship with God. I, I just don't want to do this. I I just want to stay in contact with him. I like being just in the mode of my innocence. I, I want my relationship to be as is. So the moment you sort of reflectively get it, right, what's going on, you really have a ton of positive motivation of saying uh, for rejecting that temptation. I mean, I don't want to get sideways with the Lord, not because I fear him, because I love him. And he loves me, and I just don't want to disappoint him. And I don't want to. I like being in my little state. Call it naive innocence. I'll take it. The point I'm trying to get to is if you got that state, that's a great state. And stick with it because the closer you draw to the Lord, the more easily you can reject temptation. But as I said before, the moment you try to get on the road to doing this, you're going to get a ton of temptations and they're going to get scattered. So they go from one thing to another thing, to another thing, to another thing. And you just go, I can't keep up with it. It's just overwhelming. Just laugh at it. Just go, okay, Lord, I'm getting smashed. One, each direction, you know, is coming to me. But I just turn to you and trust. And here's my prayer. I give up. You take care of it. Just remember that. I give up, Lord. You take care of it. I I can't wrestle with all these things. It's too complicated to try and figure out all these things and all of his tactics. I am not doing that. You know, you're in charge. In the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan. I give up, dear Lord. You take care of it. It really starts helping. Okay, let's uh, go to what, you know, as St. Ignatius of Loyola tells us, there's, right, we have some um we we move from what's called the first week to the second week and what he means by the first week is a person in the first week of the spiritual exercises which could last for years right that a person could be in the first week all it means is a person who goes from kind of sin to sin right so a person who is not on the road to conversion a person who just you know, either because he just lacks the capacity to resist temptation, or because he just has no faith in Jesus Christ, or he doesn't care about his relationship uh, with the Lord, or whatever it may be, he's just getting manipulated by the devil day in and day out. The Holy Spirit is coming with the f- sense of uh, profound, right? As, as this person separates himself off from God, then the Holy Spirit, you know, is not going to come. Right, with the consolation, the ordinary consolation that he normally get, that the spirit normally gives. So when that consolation is missing, the person who is separated more and more from God feels deeper and deeper unks, deeper and deeper emptiness, deeper and deeper loneliness. You know, on a cosmic level, on a spiritual level, a deeper and deeper alienation, deeper and deeper guilt. But of course, you know, the the person just says, "Well, I don't know why I feel so horrible." You know, the depression rate starts shooting up. The anxiety rate shoots up. Suicidal contemplation starts shooting up, but the person doesn't get it. They don't know what the, the reason is, but the spirit is just saying, you, you know, it's giving hints in the back of your mind. Go to church, go to confession, get back to God. This is related to God. Sometimes the Spirit is actually screaming it in the back of our minds. Without He, you know, the Spirit cannot um, overturn our freedom. The Spirit can't undermine our freedom, but He can shout pretty loudly. And if He can't get you in the day to listen, He'll get you at night to listen. You know, so you wake up at three o'clock in the morning with a start and you're feeling really guilty. Now, some people, of course, could do this because they're scrupulous or some people could do it because they genuinely have some kinds of clinical depression or other kinds of things. Precluding those instances of, you know, of, uh, uh, you know, scrupulosity or clinical depression or, you know, obviously, you know, paranoid schizophrenia, etc. If you preclude from that for just a minute. The ordinary person getting the wake-up call at 3 o'clock in the morning where you're basically going, whoa! You know, uh, what, what was that image? Why was the Blessed Virgin Mary crying? Why was this thing falling on top of me? Why was, you know, and you just, you're, you you still feel the, the quaking of the emptiness, alienation, loneliness, guilt, and, and dread and angst, right? You, you start feeling these things inside of you. And the Holy Spirit is then at three o'clock in the morning, it's really interesting how he's got a beeline right into your heart. And he's just saying, please, Spencer, you know, repent, go to confession, go to church, right? And, Honestly, if we're open, if we're listening, if we want to just get out of this, you know, we'll listen and we'll make us the old sign up for confession. Alternatively, you know, the evil spirit will be saying, you don't really need to go to confession. And by the way, like the lizard in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. Right. The point I'm trying to get to, though, is clearly the devil will fight, you know, your intuition to. Do these things to go and reform your life, etc., and to get back on the road to God. But uh, this is the struggle, uh, and um, um, eventually, of course, when you get back on the road to God, you'll notice that the emptiness, alienation, etc., it beca- becomes uh, much, much less uh, uh, pro- uh, uh, profound. Now, the devil then has, you know, he's, he's, he's you know, you're on to him. You're trying to resist him. You're no longer going from sin to sin. And St. Ignatius of Loyola says, aha, you're moving into the second week. So in the second week, then, um, uh, as you move into it, the devil has to use a completely different tactic. So he's going to use uh, the tactic of appearing as an angel of light. So now you're on the road to conversion, right? So you're thinking to yourself, oh, you know, I'd really like to draw closer to God. I'm really going to work. On you know, trying to like, overcome some of these deadly sins. I really want to increase my prayer time. And of course, the devil is fit to be tied. But uh, he comes as an angel of light, uh, appearing as an angel of light, right? He's, not, he's never an angel of light. He tries to appear as one. So he gives you a pious suggestion Spitzer, all you need to do is overcome all eight deadly sins perfectly. Um, you know, in, uh, well, next week, how's about? and you know after all if um, if you can uh, do this over the course of a lifetime or maybe 5 minutes after you're 6 feet under well wouldn't god like it better if you did it next week wouldn't that be better of course that seems like it would be better but god is a realist he knows we can't possibly do this and maintain our you know he would have to literally overwhelm our freedom and do it for us, uh, God. and God's not going to do it for us. So he knows this is the most unrealistic suggestion that's ever been made. However, you know, the devil's going to make the unrealistic suggestion because he wants you to fail. He wants you to fail so miserably. He builds you up just to let you down. And, of course, he wants to fail, you to know, fail so miserably First, you change your notion of God. So God, instead of being the compassionate, loving God who's leading me, who's bringing me out of darkness into light, uh, who's you know His mother is just you know pouring the, this compassion, and love into my soul. Instead of that God, you've now got the ogre God, and of course, the ogre God is you know harder, faster, better, more. I want more, and I want you. Take the hardest road. Put the rocks in your shoes for penance. And, uh, and so I Ignatius says, okay, now we've got a problem. Because let's suppose you sucker for um, the devil's ploy. And let's suppose that you um, say, okay, um, I'm going to you know, overcome the eight deadly sins. Let's suppose you fall miserably. Let's suppose when you fall miserably, you start getting really discouraged and you change your view of God. And then you're just on the vantage point of giving up. That's where the devil wants you to give up. And, of course, when you give up, instead of saying, OK, I got to be more patient with myself, I got to get more realistic, I got to modify my previous thoughts, etc." Instead, you give up. You go right back to where you were and say, I may as well just be a hedonist, Do what I want. I'm going to fail anyway. And gotcha. Alternatively, says Ignatius, I'll give you a test uh, to give yourself. And here's the test. Will this increase my trust, hope, and love, or will this decrease my trust, hope, and love? So let's suppose you want to grow closer to God, and here it is, Lenten season, and you say to yourself, i got to do some more penances, and you really want to do it right. And somebody tells you, you know, hair shirts and wearing and putting rocks in your shoes, that's what really will advance, you know, your uh, penance. You'll be so far along in the spiritual life if you really do the hard stuff. And so you kind of sucker for this, uh, which, of course, is, you know, a demonic suggestion, because what begins to happen when you're walking on the rocks all day? You start trusting God less because you think he's an ogre. You start hoping in your salvation less because, of course, you think that God only wants you to produce He just wants you to be successful at your penances. He doesn't care about you. He's up there in heaven going, hmm, Spitzer, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. Oh, hell, you know, and indifferently sends you off to the netherworld. Of course, the third thing is your capacity for love goes right through the floor, right? So you're wearing the rocks, you're getting so irritated by stepping on rocks all day that you take the 1 Corinthians 13 test. Well, how's my, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love is merciful, doesn't grow angry, doesn't boast, etc. So you look at that and you go, oh, how's my um, uh, patience level? And of course, you're so irritated from the rocks, you're totally impatient. And how's my kindness level? And you notice that you're so, you know, the rocks are bothering you so much, you know, you're just uh, totally um Unkind to everybody, and uh, and then of course you're boasting like man. Well, I'm stepping on rocks. What are you doing? You know, and of course you're angry at people who look at you and go, "Well, I'm not going to step on rocks all day," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it, it's not working. So you say, "I took the trust, hope, and love test. I flunked." Well, what does that mean? That means I got deceived by the devil appearing as an angel of light, and I got a reverse course. And how do I reverse course? i got to modify what I was deciding, modify what I'm reading, modify some opinion that I thought was from God but wasn't from God, etc. Now all these rules are described in Chapter 4, can't go into it any further. Uh, But I also go into how the devil deceives not only you as an individual, but uses you to deceive others. And I also go into how does the devil use the culture to deceive us collectively and individually, because he really is doing a masterful job uh, right now uh, on the culture. And so um, I remember Paul Harvey's speech, if I were the devil, I would, and he goes through these things, and this is a speech delivered in the 1960s, right? And uh, of course, if you start reading it today, you know, 60 years later, you go, oh my gosh, it's all true. Every bit of this is true. He picked it exactly as it, our culture has morphed right into Paul Harvey's speech. If I were the devil, I would. So I give some, some thoughts about that, and I'll just leave it at, at that. Um, chapters 5 and 6 go into the deadly sins in a great deal of detail. And the reason that I go into that kind of detail is because I really want to see people to see how the devil works in the sin. So I take contemporary literature, you know, literature contemporary, uh, not contemporary, but it could be also classical literature like Anna Karenina or Shakespeare or something like that. But the point um, uh, is, is that I I do try to give some classical uh, literary examples and other ones where people might have some familiarity with these deep characters that were developed by Shakespeare, Dickens, or whoever. Uh, Tolstoy. So, um, for example, with Anna Karenina, what's really salient, what's really important uh, in in Anna's life is that uh, every time, you know, she gets a temptation. So she's very obviously she's smitten by Count Vronsky. Uh, really just a handsome soldier with every kind of imaginable talent, and uh, she's smitten, and she's very, very beautiful herself, Uh, no question about it. But the, the point, of course, is that as Anna, you know, kind of succumbs to the temptations, first, you know, she has to leave her husband, but she's got all the rationalizations Ready to hand. It's uh, almost as if the devil devil is right at her elbow, with every rationalization they're ready. Well, my husband did this, and he's you know he's not a very you know um, uh, you know as as husbands go, as as good a husband as somebody else and and really this and really that and but but it was never really anything. It was just most of it exaggerations concocted to give her an excuse to separate herself from her husband it was much more difficult for her to leave her son behind. So she has you know a young son um, and she certainly uh, uh, does not want to uh, uh, to leave him but you know for the you know the love of Vronsky, oh by the way, that love is so beautiful it could not be wrong. So she's got again rationalization after rationalization you know I mean remember, uh, beauty can be correlated with evil as often as it can be correlated with good. And so, uh, uh, you know, the the point is, of course, Anna says, well, this is so beautiful, it, it can't be wrong. And she now uh, uses all the, the powers at her disposal, rationalizations at her disposal to separate herself from her son, then from her uh, friends and so forth and so on. finally, uh, because of her actions and just the the forthrightness with which she asserts this to her friends, that you know, she's forced to go to Paris, et cetera, et cetera. I, but my point in bringing all this detail out Um, which you can read about, obviously, in the book, is that rationalizations, the devil not only gives you the temptation, he gives you the rationalization to go along with it. And they're really good rationalizations. And he's always opening doors to opportunities for you to reinforce the very deadly sin that you are interested in. So all of a sudden, you'll notice the door will open. There's the the deadly sin. It's right in front of you, right? And you're kind of getting sucked into it, um, you know, as as uh, uh, even despite yourself, because he's doing it. And so again, you know, uh, Scrooge, he's tempted in in the same way, and 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 Scrooge has rationalized everything just like Anna has. So deeply, he's lied to himself, right? To thine own self be true. And it follows as the night, the day that thou canst not be false to any man. But it's, you know, it is the opposite. He's, he's lied to himself so profoundly, he loses his fiancee who can't stand being around his lust for money anymore. That um, uh, basically, he now becomes this embittered uh, person who justifies his greed, you know, and his just his torture of all his employees, et cetera. Um, and uh, uh, um, you know, with this climactic incident, and if you saw the Scrooge with George C. Scott, it's perfectly wonderful. Where, of course, this this guy is, these two guys, are ringing their bell for Christmas to help the the people uh, who are really poor, and uh, Scrooge says, "I choose not to give uh, to your funds, sirs." And they go, well, why not? He goes, oh, I already give uh, to the poor. I give to jails. I give to the uh, workhouses, which are basically implementing slave labor uh, in the workhouses. And I give to, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, places that will, uh, you know, take the, you know, people off of the streets. And these two respond, well, most people would rather die than go to those places. And Scrooge says, well, Excellent. It will get rid of some of the surplus population. And he leaves. And of course, the goes to Christmas present and past make him pay for that statement. But the, the point I'm trying to get to is um, Scrooge did listen. Uh, to, as it were, the three o'clock wake-up calls in the form of the three ghosts uh, that confront him uh, you know, with the feelings not only of guilt, but the feelings of how he has degenerated as a person and separated himself off from God. He doesn't go to church anymore, right? but he does after his reconversion, as it were, his reversion. So that all these things being the case, um, I, you know, I go through the sins. I mean, Hamlet has to be used for anger because everybody talks about righteous anger. And it's true, we have a right to be angry when somebody has just stabbed us in the back and they've done it for no apparent reason. They don't have really any rational excuse for having done it. So it wasn't an oversight or anything. It was a deliberate attempt to, to, to either deceive us or hurt us or ruin our reputation, whatever the case may be. And, and of course, Hamlet's got it all. He's righteous anger right to the core. And, of course, Jesus is saying, you know, saying, you know, don't get angry with your brother or sister, right? And and, uh, now, of course, we have Hamlet. He's got, you know, his father was killed by his uncle Claudius, who poured poison into his ear. And then, after killing him, takes over his kingdom by marrying his mother. Hamlet is ticked off. And the father in the form of a ghost, right, comes and says, you got to get me some vengeance. And so now anger has grown to vengeance in the heart of Hamlet, but we all know what happens. He mistakes Polonius for his uncle Claudius behind a curtain, stabs Polonius, who was his mentor and friend, the man who said, to thine own self be true, etc., to Hamlet. He's now dead, Ophelia, the daughter, when Hamlet goes away to England, the daughter Ophelia, she. Basically, seems to commit suicide. It's not absolutely clear that she does, but she winds up drowned in an act that looks suicidal. And then, of because of the death of her father, and then Laertes, the son of Polonius, who's Hamlet's best friend, is so angry at him. Anger begets anger. Violence begets violence. Vengeance begets vengeance. So Laertes, right? He does gets the poison tip the sword, you know, and then has the backup cup of poison. Um, you know, for the congratulatory speech to Hamlet, uh, cup for Hamlet, if, uh, if he should win the sword fight with uh, Laertes. And of course, uh, Laertes, um, uh, when Hamlet, basically an unfair play move, uh, slashes Hamlet, poisons him. Then uh, um, the mother, by accident, drinks the, uh, the cup, uh, you know, of wine that's poisoned. And then, of course, uh, Hamlet, Uh, uh, kills Laertes, and finally he runs uh, Uncle Claudius through with his sword. So you got six innocent people die because Hamlet was admittedly righteously angry. So uh, I've got a whole bunch of other uh, great uh, critiques, but um, I, I point out the literary ones because it gets into the heads of these characters. What is moving them to go to these extremes? So we do Iago. Um, in um, the, the great tragedy, Othello, who is the most envious man who's ever lived. You can read about that. Uh, we go into Judas Iscariot uh, for resentment and pride, the pride that causes resentment, the narcissism that causes resentment. But we also do Macbeth, who has a sh- pure lust for power conjointly uh, with his um, uh, with his wife, Lady Macbeth. Uh, who in the end, of course, uh, destroy so many people and destroy, almost destroy, uh, uh, Scotland. And, and at the end, of course, is run through by one of his best friends, uh, puts an end, uh, you know, to uh, Hamlet's uh, uh, treachery and, and, and pride. So all of these uh, things are, are really important to read about, but they are very revelatory of how uh, the evil spirit works in our lives. Um, uh, The uh, objective of the book is, yes, it's not only to be informative about Satan, the objective of the book is to give us a big, huge, classical warning. He's real. He can get seriously real. His objective is to lead us into hell through uh, uh, the wide road to perdition, which we can always turn around on any time we want and call upon the name of Jesus. But it gets harder and harder the deeper and deeper we go down the road. But the point is we can turn and to uh, let people know this, these are his tactics. These how we, this is how he works those eight deadly sins, which are really attitudinal interior dispositions that are the warning signs. Uh, that bad behaviors are going to come from this. You know, if Hamlet keeps lusting for power, he's going to kill uh, these, you know, Duncan and a variety of other people. So you get the, the, the point there and, um, uh, you know, the objective is to say, okay, so what do I do? And that gets us into volume two, which we will not discuss today. It just came out from Ignatius Press. It's called Escape from Evil's Darkness. And it's about um, the light of Christ in the church spiritual conversion, and moral conversion. It's a practical how-to book on how to make the most use of our sacramental life, our prayer life, which is spiritual conversion, and how uh, to grow in moral conversion through affirmation prayers, the Ignatian exam, and other good spiritual tools of our spiritual masters. Well, thank you so much for your kind attention. I know I was kind of spewing out a whole lot of uh, things here, but it's an important topic and it's especially germane for today uh, with the devil being as present as he is in our culture.
0: Thank you, Father Spencer. That was very insightful. Um, for those of you watching at home, um, you might not be aware that this is our second attempt to get this lecture to you. Uh, the first time we did this event um, a couple weeks ago was live stream, and everything that could go wrong did go wrong um, on the technical side, despite everything on the producer side showing everything was running smoothly. Um, uh, So Father Spitzer, does this type of uh, technical issues happen a lot to you when you're trying to get the message out there on how to combat, uh, you know, against the devil's spiritual warfare?
1: You're not going to believe this. but. It didn't used to happen to me, but ever since I started talking about spiritual warfare, I remember my very first radio interview on this book with Teresa Tamia. There was this on a landline that we just could not get rid of. I have been I've been on interviews where I have literally been cut off, and of course, as you just pointed out, for uh, the um, Catholic Information Center, um, you know, uh, I was on. Uh, um, Uh, on with you, uh, I think, two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, and the very same thing happened. Uh, You know, we got cut off. I mean, even the YouTube recording uh, was uh, destroyed. And this afternoon, when we were trying to get back in touch today, um, it was saying, well, your video camera's on other applications. So you were having trouble on your side. I was having trouble on our side, but we just kind of patiently mastered the troubles and and uh, now uh, I guess we're going to get a pretty good recording. So, uh, but uh, yeah it's, it's amazing. And uh, do I think this is mere uh, coincidence? Oh, no, I think it's the usual, uh, you know, the uh, devil just puts up his obstacles and, you know, uh, <laughs> he's going to use those obstacles to the last minute. But uh, the Holy Spirit generally, if we've got patience and we've got fortitude, the Holy Spirit gives us a chance to do a recording like this, which will go out to even a bigger audience, and that's, of course, how the Lord pulls a lot of good consequences out of the devil's old tricks.
0: I like that uh, pulls out the pulls out the good from the devil's old tricks. Um, so when it seems like for for those at home watching, uh, when it seems like Murphy's Law is you know running supreme. Uh, what's the your one recommendation for us to do? Is it stop and say a specific prayer um, when we're really feeling uh, spiritually attacked? Um, I know at, at one point during the lecture you said, you know, that we could say this phrase. Um, is that what you would fall back to on, on any circumstance or is there something else um, we could do?
1: You know, prayers, but my usual one is to repeat in the name of Jesus uh, and that's an imprecatory prayer, right? That's that's a prayer where you're giving a command to Satan. So when you say, "In the name of Jesus, my Lord and my Savior, be gone, Satan," uh, that's directly commanding Satan. It's almost uh, you know, telling him to shut down and shut up, if I can put it that way. Um, and so that uh, we call that maybe an imprecatory command uh, kind of prayer. If you're of the other kind, or you are more of um you don't want to give a command you just want saint michael the archangel to come um into the play then i just say saint michael the archangel help me um that's the short one or saint michael the archangel defend us in battle be our safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil may god rebuke Come humbly pray and do thou prince of the heavenly corps uh, um, um cast out uh, uh, all, all evil and uh um uh, and all evils, cast out Satan, and all cast the hell, Satan, and all evil spirits. Uh, uh, so uh, you know that prayer can be very, very useful. The other prayer that is very useful uh, for me is just to call upon the Blessed Virgin Mary. I know it seems like, well, wait a minute, isn't she just a, a gentle uh, mother? Yes, she is. But uh, when she's helping you out, she is as furious and as. Uh, Really uh, vehement as a mother who's defending her child. I'm not kidding. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, the gentle Blessed Virgin Mary can become a mama bear toward the uh, toward the devil, and uh, and she's very very powerful at it. Remember Ber- uh, Bernadette Soubirous, right? Uh, who uh, um, at, at Lourdes, you know, when she had those that sense of the presence of the demonic there, and uh, you know, instead of looking down at Bernadette. Blessed Virgin Mary just looks up toward the source of these demonic presences. And they were silent by a single glance. And so I just thought to myself, hmm, she's a powerful advocate. And of course, uh, Lord Jesus, you know, help me uh, to resist this temptation. Or Lord Jesus, uh, help me, uh, you know, to uh, uh, to resist uh, Satan or Lord Jesus, defend me, help me uh, in this time of need. Uh, all those prayers are, are very workable. It really depends on you uh, what kind of prayers you want to say, but prayer is the solution. And I'm telling you, when you say in faith, Begone, Satan, in the name of Jesus, you know, you, you can't stand up against the name of Jesus. He's just powerless. And I've experienced it a lot of times, I can tell you. <laughs> he is just powerless. So uh, anyway, enough said.
0: So, I think it's fair to say that in our culture, we generally do not believe in things that we do not see. Um, this is a generalization. I'm not saying this about Catholics, but you know, for you know the non-religious person, uh, they aren't someone who's living their life by faith. Um, they like to see things like from a very scientific angle. Um, so from that perspective isn't the devil and and his evil spirits possessing someone you know where if someone sees an actual possession like it's really hard to deny like what's occurring wouldn't that reinforce the existence of God so why would the devil even possess people if it's going to ultimately lead people to Christ does that question make sense
1: Makes plenty of sense, because a lot of people uh, watch that movie, The Exorcist, and man, uh, the religious affiliation shot up after that movie. uh, Believe it or not, and you say, well, why in the world uh, would the devil let himself get into a situation where a nice, I mean, a really good author like William Peter Blatty could write about it and get people going? Well, this was based on a true story, Yoko Rama. Right? Why would he let himself? into that situation. It's really a threefold deal. Number one, the devil is absolutely arrogant. And the thought of taking uh, someone from Christ, right, of getting a soul completely seduced, of getting a soul down the road to perdition is so irresistible to him, right? It's like a, a milk bone in front of my old dog. You know, he can't almost stop himself. You know, even though Judas is playing to the plan of Jesus Christ to redeem the world, Satan is blind to it. You know, he just the irresistible thought. You know that uh, uh, you know I could really um, uh, take this soul. Uh, you know, is that's that's uh, um, um, uh, one reason. Oh, by the way, uh, exorcisms and possessions are quite rare uh, by comparison. For example, with um, haunting. Now, hauntings are, uh, there are real hauntings. There, are, Of course, now there are a million TV programs, I guess, and various cable channels where, you know, they dedicate the whole channel practically, you know, hauntings. You know, and some of them are ghosts, but some of them are really demonic spirits. And um, uh, and that's uh, you shouldn't mess with those uh, demonic spirits in a house haunting because you yourself can become uh, very affected by it. The, the point I'm trying to get to, though, is it's, possessions are rare, really rare. And you have to have a psychiatrist on hand to, to work it, etc. You have to have paranormal phenomena, things like Robbie speaking Latin, you know, Julia speaking over the, the line where she's not even around, um, things like that. That uh, a kind of um, a thought will convince a person. But there's a second motive uh, of the devil, and that is that if you invite him in, He's going to come. In other words, it again, it's irresistible to him. It's, you know, he claims a soul. He may get a lot of other souls scared, but he's got one in the bag. And the best way of assuring that the soul's in the bag is if the soul invites him in. And like in the case of Robbie, you know, you say, well, he was just naive. He thought he was speaking to his own uh, period. But in some context in there, the devil put the question, uh, you know, I can give you something that you can't have on your own. I could give you the power to have special knowledge. I could do this. I could do that. Some temptation that he's going to put out there. All you got to do is just let me help you. That's the invitation. It's not just saying yes to the sin, you start saying yes to the devil. He's never going to turn you down because, of course, he's got you in the bag now. Now it's going to be much harder uh, for uh, you to be redeemed because he is actually, uh, in this particular case, either haunting your home or haunting you or oppressing you. And oppression means that things are happening to you from outside. So uh, maybe the devil's not in you and manifesting in you, uh, but there are all kinds of oppressive things that are uh, going on to you. Um, you. Again, you know, the moving of furniture does not necessarily have to be in a possessed person, right? It can happen almost around a possessed person, et cetera. So the, the point is though, the more you uh uh, invite the devil in, so you, you start using Ouija boards, you start using tarot cards, you start playing Charlie, Charlie, this new game of basically inviting the devil uh, in, etc., or trying to get demonic power, You're know, thinking it's just harmless, it's just a game. It's not a game. And even though there is naivete, you can be s- sucked into it sucked into the power and the pride of the moment. And, of course, the devil's not going to say no. Uh, if you're dumb enough to say yes to him, he's going to definitely take advantage uh, because he's got one in the bag. There's a third reason, though, that uh, the devil does uh, uh, actually possess uh, a people or attempt to possess people, and uh, that is um, uh, he's a tormentor. Um, he just Plain loves to torture people. He loves to make people really um, agonize in pain. Um, and, of course, uh, the people who were very successful at exercising demons, Padre Pio or the Curie of ours, right, uh, Gianviani, Vianney, um, they were always tormented. Even as saints, they were tormented by Satan. He just liked doing it. And so, you know, poor John Vianney, his bed is going all night long and all kinds of voices are finding him and he tried everything under the sun. And basically it was, you know, that was his penance. And he took it that way. He just said, well, Lord, I'm going to offer up all this sleeplessness and suffering and torment. I'm offering it up for every single soul who came into my confessional today and every soul who didn't come into my confessional today. I just want you to take all this stuff that's myself offering for their salvation, free them from the devil, as you oppress me, but as you let me be oppressed by the Lord doesn't oppress anybody. Uh, let me be oppressed by the devil, and of course that's a good prayer, right? I mean that's the way to do. Like Mother Teresa, okay, she had you know she went through a dark night of the soul, and she did for many years. Uh, you know, right at the prime of her, you know, charitable life or the good she was doing and everything else. And she just offered it all up for the poor and and the salvation of the world that was getting increasingly corrupt before her very eyes. So um, again, the devil really almost the delight in torment uh, um, overcomes his reason, if I can put it that way, that, you know, He's going to just offer this up, or she's just going to offer this up, you know, um, uh, for some purpose, you know, or, you know, people are going to get scared if I possess an innocent person like Robbie Mannheim. Um, you know, uh, um, people are just going to get scared. We, you know, it's just like, well, I think I'll torture him. I'll play with him like a cat plays with a rat.
0: Man, you say all of this, and, you know, as a, a Catholic who, um, you know, believes in God and the message of the church and her truth. I, and obviously I believe in the devil and his minions, but as you talk about all this, I can't help but feel just sorry and sad for the devil, you know, just, I mean, he used to be, you know, an angel that fell and it's just sad. Like, that's just the feeling I have around I just feel sorry for him. Like, I, I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but.
1: he had angelic knowledge so he went for the hate and the torture and the venom you know um he went for to become the protagonist in a horror movie par excellence um and with angelic knowledge knew the consequences he would have to pay to get the delight of torturing people and that's why he did it now of course you can say i have compassion for somebody who throws away his life and you know does this does god weep for everyone who chooses hell including satan yes god loved lucifer before his fall but after his fall lucifer had transformed himself into somebody who is quite hateful i mean you know a person who doesn't want any part of your compassion he sure doesn't want anybody feeling sorry for it. and that wonderful scene in Milton, uh, which I quote in the book. Remember in Paradise Lost, um, where you know the devil, the chief devil, you know Lucifer, there's bucking up his his uh, companion devils down in hell, and they're kind of complaining it's bad down here, it's eternal, and he said, "Buck up, guys! You know what? An eternity down here is so much better." And one second genuflecting to that so called creator up in heaven. We have created ourselves. Well, if you read that speech of <coughs> Satan, <coughs> written so, um, I think, perceptively by Milton, uh, you get pretty much the idea that. Uh, well,
0: Father's. Sp- yeah, no, obviously. Um, well, Father Spitzer, thank you so much for you know taking the time. I know you're a very busy man, um, for not recording, for not just recording this this talk once, but twice, um, for our audience. Uh, you know, it's an important message that you have taken the time to write and to give. So I definitely encourage all of you watching this to pick up your copy of his book, "Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives: The Cosmic Struggle Between Good and Evil." And as he mentioned, he also has a. Second book that you said it just came out, or it's just being released now? Um,
1: From Evil's Darkness, the Light of Christ in the Church, Spiritual Conversion, and Moral Conversion.
0: So be sure to get your copy of that book as well. Uh, Have a wonderful evening, uh, morning, whenever you're watching this, just have a wonderful day, Uh, and be sure to follow us um, at at www.cicdc.org to stay up to date on all that we have to offer. Thank you, and God bless.